0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Luke chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 19 today, Luke Luke chapter 17, just while you're turning there. Uh, One of the worst things I think we can do, or or certainly a a very bad thing we can do, is give the impression that uh, the Christian life is an easy one. That simply does not serve anyone. It's not really true, and it doesn't serve anybody to even uh, insinuate that. To be sure, it is great. It is wonderful. There are joys to be known, blessings to be known, experienced along the way. But easy, uh, that's not a good word for it. And it's unfortunate that sometimes even people present it to others that way, as if it is easy. Um, You know, just just try it out. Just give it a shot. Just try. Um, You know, you want to go to heaven, don't you? Well, just, it's all you got to do is this. You pray this prayer, say these things, and and it's easy. It's that simple. That's the, sometimes implied, or it seems, that seems to be the message, or you're going to get all these goods if you do, or all these wonderful blessings will be yours, and it's just presented as some easy thing. It's unfortunate it gets presented that way. It also... We also see it when sin gets downplayed, uh, when you know people wonder why an, a Christian is battling sin or struggling with it. Uh, doesn't just hand it over to the Lord and and just move on with life. You know, it's as if the battle with sin is not continual, or as if it's not a real battle. And we see it when people act as if Christians should not experience pain or suffering, as though they should just be able to throw on a smile and and get on with life, as if Christians are immune to pain, as if depression never touches a believer, as if the world and Satan, the god of this age, is not out to crush the joy of believers and make us completely and utterly ineffective and rob us of our joy. Of course, uh, the Christian has aid in all of these things, a uh, uh, help that the world knows nothing about. There is victory Uh, In these areas, there is joy to be had, but to speak of these things as if this is all just easy, or to give that impression, well, this is unhelpful at best. It was the Lord himself who told us that the gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. And so along the way, we need encouragement, we need help, we need uplifting, we need reminders of truth that we've believed, we need reminders of what God's word says of what is good we need reminders of what's true we need exhortation from one another we need exhortation we from his from God's word we need encouragement we need rebuke in some cases and in our text today we have three short sections that remind us how we should carry on our way and these texts encourage us on our pilgrimage in the life of faith We are not left without instruction. We are not left without help. God has given His Spirit. He's given us His Word. And in His Word today, we find the Lord instructing His disciples and instructing us. And so let us come to it now for guidance and for life and for encouragement and strength today. So let's read these verses. And then we'll go through them. So Luke 17, verse 5. Luke tells us, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So in these verses, we are called to take courage in the faith that we possess and to press forward in our Christian duty in a spirit of thankfulness and praise. That's a summary of these verses. That's really the outline. We're going to just walk through this. That we are called to take courage in the faith that we possess and to press forward in our Christian duty In a spirit of thankfulness and praise to God. So verses 5 to 6 teach us to be encouraged at any and all signs of true faith. To be encouraged at any and all signs of true faith. How easily and how quickly we are discouraged. And I think these words in verses 5 and 6 would would encourage us in the faith that we do have. So in verse 5 we see the apostles, the twelve. Sometimes Luke calls them the twelve. Sometimes they're just the disciples and sometimes they are the apostles. The twelve, they ask Jesus, they make a request of Him. They say, increase our faith. And interpreters differ over whether this question in verse 5, or whether this request I should say, is in direct response to the previous section, particularly the command in verse 4 that we're to forgive our brother if he sins against us all day long and keeps coming back to us to repent. Are we really supposed to keep forgiving him? Jesus has told us we are. And so some think then, then immediately following this, they say, well, increase our faith. This is uh, not an easy thing to do. And, and, I, and, and if I'm going to do this and live this way, then I'm going to need you, Lord, to increase our faith. The issue, the question, is, is um, whether or not verses 1 to 10 are a seamless account of what happened in one moment, um, that all of these just happened sequentially right after one another. Uh, we know that Luke doesn't always present things in a chronological order. We've talked about this. Uh, sometimes he's taking things from different times in Jesus' life and he puts them together. And We know that he has a purpose in the way that he puts them together, even if they're not, in chronological order. And so there's some dispute if this is all in one setting here or not. But regardless, regardless of how intimately these are all connected, every disciple, every believer knows what it's like to look at, to hear what God calls a believer to do or what God calls a believer to endure. And we think, I don't think I have enough faith for this. And this seems to be what Luke is, is, why Luke has this here, even if it's not exactly the same time as what occurred in verses 1 to 4. I mean, who doesn't identify with this request for more faith, for an increase in faith? Who hasn't looked at what the Lord calls us to deny ourselves, you know, to deny earthly, worldly lusts, and, and who hasn't looked at this and read that and shuddered, knowing the the power of the flesh within us, knowing that we we are weak and struggled with this and wondered if we have enough faith to obey this. Uh, who, Who hasn't imagined a scenario in which we question whether or not we would be able to stand if that scenario came about, if we contracted that disease or we experienced that kind of a loss or whatever it might be? Who isn't in touch with their own weakness and at times trembling at thoughts of the future? I would suggest that every Christian has experienced this to some degree or another. And some of us feel it very often. Some of us feel it quite regularly, our weakness and our lack of faith. And so I would say that this request of theirs is not altogether wrong-headed, even though Jesus will offer some correction. And I think he's going to uh, refocus us a little bit here in his answer. But I think what prompts this request of the disciples is, uh, is, is the fact that they are, in this moment at least, seeing their weakness, seeing their inability, seeing that God's calling them to something uh, high, a high standard. And so I'm going to need more faith for this. And so Jesus responds here with a gentle correction. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So what Jesus is saying is that even the presence of a little bit of true faith is powerful. And so the main question then is not, do I have massive amounts of faith, but rather it's, is the faith that I do possess genuine? The mustard seed is a tiny seed. It's nothing impressive. And so if we had faith of that size, that seems unimpressive to us. But such faith, Jesus says, is capable of commanding a tree to be uprooted and then planted in the seed. So this is clearly a figurative, this is clearly figurative speech. Trees do not become planted in the seed. So the the point that he's making is to, to, to show us the power and the efficacy of a little bit, even a little bit of true faith. And so the issue is not quantity or amount of faith that we have. Really the issue is the quality of our faith. What kind of faith is it? Is it true faith? Is it the kind of faith that James would say is a saving faith? The Bible tells us what true, biblical, saving faith looks like. At the time of the Reformation, uh, the Reformers, I think, rightfully talked to three aspects of saving faith that involved knowledge, involved assent, and involved trust. Uh, So it involves knowledge of certain biblical truths. Obviously, we need to know some things if we are to have saving faith. We need to have a knowledge, a cognitive understanding of at least some basic truths of the gospel. That God is our holy creator. He's created all things, including mankind. That we are sinners before God. That we deserve His wrath and judgment because of our sins. We fall short of His glory. But that God in love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth on behalf of His people, those who would believe in Him, that He came to live a righteous life, to earn a righteousness that would be credited to His people's account, that He would then on the cross take the sins of His people upon Himself and pay their penalty for those sins, that Jesus would die for those sins but then rise again from the dead. Uh, We need to know certain truths. But of course it's more than that. It includes assent. It includes not just knowing and hearing those things, but also agreeing with those things. Those things are true. I assent to the fact that those are true things. But there's another element yet. Even demons know true things about God, and yet they shudder. They do not have saving faith. Saving faith involves trusting God. It's past. It's not just the intellectual understanding of things and agreement in the head. This gets through to the heart issue, that we are trusting God, that we say, this is true, and this is my only hope, that Christ is my only hope. I need Him, I have no other chance of standing before God. I believe that He died, that He died for me, and, and I, I'm, I'm trusting in Him alone. So the nature of this true faith is such that it, it bears fruit. It is a type of faith that God Himself implants in a person that's from His, his Spirit, it's Spirit-given. John 3 makes that clear. And so it's the kind of faith that bears the fruit of repentance. It results in the fruit of the Spirit being gradually evident in somebody's life. It involves a change in one's life, a desire for the things of God, and then a distaste now and a despising of sin. It also involves dying to sin, living for righteousness, which includes a lifelong battle against our sin. True faith is not instant perfection. Nor is it merely present in those that we would consider to be giants of the faith. Those we would think have massive amounts of faith. So we might look at a God-given task that's before us. Some Christian duty that the word of God calls us to. And we might think, I need more faith for this. Or we might think of a possible difficulty that could come our way or tragedy that might befall us and we might think I would need much more faith if I were ever to get through something like that. And that can unsettle us. But Jesus' response here, I think, helps us to think differently about this. Rather than panicking about what we think we currently lack, Jesus points us back to what we do, in fact, possess. If we have any true faith, we are told here that this is powerful. And so it's right, we ought to take comfort in this. That because we have true faith, we trust that this will help us overcome whatever might come our way. That we in fact possess that which we need. Again, true faith, as Jesus told Nicodemus, it's a spirit of Given faith, and this is what makes even a seemingly small portion of it significant and effective because it's God given. So, we've talked about this before, but true spiritual strength it's not a um, you know, a braggy tough guy strength that set has this you know, that stands here now and says, you know, no matter what comes, I'll stand, you know, I'll stand strong, doesn't matter what happens. You know, I, I'm, I believe, I'm strong, I've got this thing. Any attitude in the Bible that comes anywhere close to approaching that thinking ended very badly. Uh, think about even the disciples. When the Lord told them one of them would betray him, all of them denied it. All of them vowed, we will go with you to death. They were very confident, very sure. They were very strong in that moment. I have no doubt they honestly believed that. They were very confident. And yet, when the hour of temptation came, they all dispersed, they all fled. Our only hope is not that we are so strong, nor is our hope even that we are currently filled with so much faith. We might even feel strong today, and that's good. We might feel strong in the faith today, but Paul even warns us, if we feel that way, to take heed lest we fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Everywhere, we're warned of our weakness. We are weak people. We are not to find strength in ourselves. And so the hope then is that this faith that we have is true. And therefore that God will sustain us by our faith, through our faith, when difficulty comes, when we are called on to obey in a difficult way that could end with persecution or could end with losing a job or some other form of difficulty. Or when we're called on to fight a sin that just seems like an enormous mountain before us. Or whatever the trial might come our way. Our hope is that even the faith that we do have now, that God would sustain us in that. And so do you have faith? Do you believe the Scriptures? Do you believe the Gospel? Even if you're very aware of how weak you are, and you're very aware of how much you lack, be encouraged by the presence of true faith. And trust, trust that because of that, the Lord will sustain you whatever comes. And so do not let your weakness, what you lack become an excuse for not striving forward in your Christian duty and in your obedience. Don't sit around and just wait for some large measure of faith just suddenly fall on you. Set out to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord and the things that He calls you to. Trust that He'll carry you through whatever difficulties come. I'm weak now. I don't know how I'd stand if X ever came about. Trust Him that at that time He will help you. He will provide for you because you're trusting not in yourself but in Him. You might fear or tremble at the thought of reproach from the world. I don't know how I would handle that if it came or if I was persecuted. But trust that the Lord would sustain you through it. You'd survive if someone suddenly hated you, if that's the thing you fear. Even if we're not those who other people will write books about, If faith is true, Jesus would have us take courage in this and press forward, press onward. So be encouraged by any and all signs of true faith. You may say I'm, you may, I've heard some of you say, declare how incredibly weak you are. And yet even in your incredible weakness, declare that you have nowhere else to turn. That you know, you know you believe. You believe. I'm weak. I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I believe. And so trust, friends, that God will keep you and bring you through it. Many of you have seen that. We've seen that in our midst around us. People in great weakness nevertheless be carried through. Why? Because they're macho people? No, because the Lord is faithful and because they possess even a small measure of true faith. And So be encouraged by any and all signs of true faith. Secondly, we're called here to press on then in humble Christian duty in verses 7 to 10. So the verses we just read, they're an encouragement when faith seems small, when faith seems weak, and now we're told to just press on in humble duty. We're given the mindset and we're given the attitude that we should have as we go about our service to the Lord. And so look at verse, verse 7. He says, Will any of you who has a servant... That's the the word do law. Some of you are familiar with the word could and I would suggest should here be translated slave. Any of you who has a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? That's the more normal way of it does he think that the servant or sorry does he thank the servant the slave because he did what was commanded and then jesus tells us in verse 10 the purpose of this little mini parable so you also when you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy slaves we have only done what was our duty most english translations um They shy away from translating this word as slave. Um, the ESV gives us a footnote there, um, but most almost every English translation does, does does not translate this word as slave there's various reasons for it in fact, in the preface of even the ESV Bible uh, it, it actually has a section on what how they translate this word and why they translate it the way they do and there's different reasons um, but primarily, the main reason is the fact that it conjures up to us such negative images, and it can distort our understanding of it. So most of us, we think of slavery, we just think of the transatlantic slave trade and how awful that was. Um, and so, so so, they want to avoid, you know, misunderstanding what's being said, and they don't translate it that way. Um, but I, I would just suggest that it's helpful if we Think of the as we actually, if we actually translate it as slave, and then do the work of trying to understand what do the authors mean when they use this word, like what do they mean, what don't they mean, uh, in this case and in other times in the New Testament. The the fact is, it's not as though slavery in the first century was this wonderful institution, free from you know abuse and some awful. Uh, occurrences within it uh, in the first century, when Jesus said this, and when the New Testament authors use this as a metaphor for the Christian life, and so they 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 have a, a reason for this. Jesus uses this metaphor, which could be open to misunderstanding, for a reason. Uh, there's a gentleman named Murray Harris who wrote a book called Slave of Christ, and he helpfully reminds us that when a metaphor is used in any place in life, we need to determine which aspects of the metaphor are, are in mind. So the example he gives is if, if we were to say the moon was a gleaming coin, right, you would understand what, what that means. A, a coin is round, and if light shines upon it, it reflects a bright light. And so you can have a picture of the moon that's obviously full moon, it's round, it's bright that we, we understand what that you know that metaphor is, is doing. We are not suggesting in that metaphor, the moon was a gleaming coin. We're not suggesting that the moon was man-made. We're not suggesting the moon can be exchanged for goods and services, right? I mean, that's what a coin is. That's what a coin does. But we know that that part of what a coin is is not part of the... Uh, analogy, right, are not part of the metaphor. We understand that. That's an example that's pretty clear to us. And so I think we can likewise come to this issue of the word slave and understand that there are some aspects and some forms of slavery that are not in view when we are called God's slaves or slaves of Christ, as these are phrases used throughout the New Testament. We may not even realize that because it's often not translated that way. So for example, God is not a cruel and abusive taskmaster. We might think of that element of of slavery that certainly has been common throughout human history. Uh, But that's that's not what this is saying, that God is some cruel taskmaster and abusive. Uh, Nor does the metaphor imply that we've been robbed and stolen from a better life and dragged into a forced and cruel slavery. That's not what it means when we are likened to being slaves of God. So what does this mean? Well, one key difference between a slave and a servant is that while uh, both serve, slaves are owned by their masters. And this aspect is clear in this passage and throughout the New Testament, that as Christians... We are those who belong to God, that we are owned by Him. That we are not our own, we were bought with a price. We actually belong to God, we belong to the Lord. Paul, Peter, James, Jude, they all refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. They call themselves that. And so the idea then of being owned by another, belonging to another, this is... Important for understanding who we are in the Lord. We are not our own. And, and that might, I don't know, it might sound unappealing to those who love freedom and the idea of freedom. But paradoxically, the Bible is clear that put to belong to God as his slave is also, in another sense, to be free. This maybe sounds strange, but think of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul writes, he says, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a slave, so he's talking about the, the person who was saved, called to the Lord, while he was a slave, literally somebody's slave, this person, he says, is a freed man of the Lord. So he's a freed man. In Christ, he's free. But he goes on, he says, likewise, he who was free when called, when he became a Christian, is a slave of Christ. So clear we have to belong to Christ, to be saved, is said both to be a freedom and also to be a slavery to Christ. And these things for Paul are not, this is not uh, inconsistent in, in, in the Bible's understanding. So the Bible speaks then of belonging to Christ as both freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Uh, But we're told that that freedom is not just a freedom to, well, just do whatever we might want. It's not a freedom from all constraint. No, it's a freedom from the law. It is a freedom from sin. It's a freedom from the law in terms of uh, how we're trying to gain righteousness before God. We're out from under the curse of the law. We're free from that. And we are able, made free, to rightly worship God. We are free then to live for the purpose for which God has created us. So if you think of Galatians 5, uh, the first verse of that chapter, for freedom Christ has set us free. So the book of Galatians is a lot about freedom, that we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. We're free from the law in that sense. But then chapter 5 of Galatians goes on to make clear that again, it's not a freedom to just indulge in fleshly behavior it's rather a freedom to walk in the spirit as those who belong to god so we belong to him and this ultimately is a freedom for us to belong to him even as it's described as slavery to christ to be otherwise to be not a slave to god is to then be enslaved to what Sin, there's not a neutral territory here where somebody's just free and now uh, we throw on this yoke of slavery to the Lord. No, we're either enslaved to our sin, which ends in death, or we are enslaved to the Lord, which has as its end eternal life. And So to be apart from Christ is no freedom at all, though such a person might make up their own rules. And so in this parable, the master is the one who tells the slave what he is to do. He sets the duties for the slave. He goes out and he serves and then he comes in and he wears the appropriate clothes and then he serves this master supper and when he's done, then it's his turn to eat. He sets the duties of the slave. That's normal. That's expected. And so this too is key for our understanding of what it means to belong to God. To be his slave. We exist to do his bidding. To live for his honor and glory. He is the Lord. We are not. He is master and we are not. And of course we see in these verses that we uh, we, we see the attitude that we ought to have in this service. That our obedience to what God calls us to is the least that we could do. That it's not meritorious in any way. That when all is said and done we just... We just say we are merely serving as a slave. We've simply done what was our duty. We are unworthy. So we do not put God in our debt that somehow makes Him owe us something. No, we belong to Him. And so it's right. It is appropriate for us to live for Him. To do the things that He calls us to. So one one implication here is that what He does give us, He gives us in grace. We don't earn things from God. We don't do a little bit of work, and then He pays us with these certain blessings. That's not how the relationship works. We belong to Him. He is our master. So I think we tend to have the mindset. Perhaps it's not stated, or we don't... uh, It can creep up on us, but the mindset is uh, in which we have this uh, maybe implicit list of demands about how life ought to be, Uh, the kinds of things that we ought to have, the types of relationships that ought to be ours, the types of experiences and various other expectations that we are expecting God to give us. And if these things are not met or they're taken away from us, then we sometimes become angry with God. Or perhaps we become depressed and we wonder, how could he do this to us? I've put in all of this work for him. I've put in all of these years of service. I've been content with just a little bit. And now even this thing is gone. And we, and we may not say it quite that crassly, but that is often why we are downcast. We're upset and we're mad because we feel God has let us down. He's not given us what we thought we deserved, and we, he owed us. But this is not how it works. We don't put God in our debt. We don't earn these things from Him. We don't put in service so we can later cash it in for our other desires to be fed. We're called here to humble service as unworthy slaves with a mindset that we are simply doing our duty when we do serve the Lord in the various areas of life in which we are called to serve Him. But let us also see the goodness of this, the exaltedness of this. Again, to be his slave is to be freed from sin. The only alternative is to be enslaved to sin and death. To be a slave of God, on the other hand, is to be free from sin. It's to belong to the Almighty, the King of creation, the one who's created all things. It's to be a citizen of the new Jerusalem now, and then to dwell with God later in the new Jerusalem forever. To be a slave to the king of glory, the creator of all things, is far better than any other position we might attain. And so this is a call uh, to humble performance of our Christian duty, to love our neighbor, to seek to love our God, and to do these things in all of the ways that we're called to do this, in all of the arenas of life, to do this as those who just who belong to God. We're not seeking to earn anything. We're not earning our justification. We're not seeking that from Him. But simply understanding that He is worthy. And as those who have been bought by a price, we belong now to Him. And so Jesus calls us to be encouraged in the faith we possess, to humbly press forward in our Christian duty, and then thirdly, to press on in a spirit of thankfulness and praise to God. So the... the the narrative now in verse 11, it moves on. Uh, we're reminded in verse 11 that Jesus is ultimately on his way to Jerusalem. If you remember this section that we are in from chapter 9 and verse 51, all the way until he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 19, this whole section, there's, there's at various points, we're reminded he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's set his face toward Jerusalem. That the ultimate goal of his life and his earthly ministry is to go to Jerusalem and to face there the cross, to die, to rise again from the dead. So this is just a reminder here that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And we're told that he was, as he was on his way, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So these men, they were outcasts from society. They have some form of leprous disease, a skin disease. That term can refer to uh, a number of different um, skin diseases. They were outside the city. They were not really supposed to be near others, and if they were, they were to call out, unclean, unclean. And I remember uh, growing up being told that was because people were mean to them, so they were to, had to yell unclean. But that's actually the, the, old, the, the law of God told them they were supposed to do that. It's actually God that told them they had to say that. Uh, And that's a protection for the other people. Uh, They have this disease that can be transmitted, and so they're to yell, they're unclean, so others don't come near. The issue was that people tended to think that those who contracted this kind of disease were therefore cursed of God because they were sick with this disease. And so they did tend to treat these people with disdain, which was not right, And so these men cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. And by that, they they want healing. They want Jesus to heal them. So verse 14, Jesus says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. The reason he sends them to the priests is that this was the normal procedure for determining if a person who had had leprous disease was in fact cleansed, the priest oversaw this process. And this process is outlined in Leviticus 13 and 14. And so Jesus here is upholding the Old Testament law. It's still in force, and he's saying, you go to these priests and and, and have them verify this. And I I think it's Matthew, Henry, and others who point out that this would have a few effects. Not only is he just doing what is in keeping with the law, um, but also... These, these men are going to go to these priests, and it's going to be a testimony to these men and to others. So if you think of last week, I was talking about how the things that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed, they were not unverifiable, sketchy things that maybe it happened and maybe it didn't. These things were not done in a corner. They were done very publicly, very blatantly. Well, here, Jesus is sending these ten men to the priest. And so the priest, ten men are going to come to the priest, all cured of leprosy at the same time, And he's going to say, how did this possibly happen? You know, one of you maybe, but all ten of you. And they're going to tell him, Jesus of Nazareth healed us. We asked him for mercy, and he showed us mercy. He has healed us. And so the priests are going to have to see this miracle. And it's going to be clear to everybody who knew these men that they had been healed in a miraculous way. It says that on their way, they were healed. And then in verse 15... Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, seemingly probably before he even gets to the priest, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So upon being healed, one of the men returned, and it says he was praising God loudly. He's filled with joy at what has occurred. He realizes God has shown him mercy And he comes back and he's offering praises to God and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. And there's no indication that that's uh, an an inappropriate thing, quite the contrary. This is the appropriate right reaction. He's thankful to the Lord, he's praising God, he's been healed in an incredible fashion. And and it's noted here by Luke that the man was ironically a Samaritan. And so Jesus responded in verse 17, Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's commonly stated that the other nine men simply had no gratitude at all. And uh, I think that's probably not entirely true. I don't... I doubt that they were just simply hardened. That they were on their way to the priest and they're cured and they're like, you know, not the least bit happy about it. I don't think that's the case. I think likely they would have been filled with all kinds of happiness. They would have been very, very glad. Very relieved for what had happened. Very excited that they had received I mean, how could they not have, have reacted that way? The issue that Jesus seems to be pointing to here Is that they did not return to give thanks to God. Verse 18. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. So they may very well have been very happy. Very pleased. They might have wept with gladness. They may well have gone home and celebrated with their families and slaughtered fattened calves, and been very glad for it, very relieved. Celebrating. But for only one of these men did this miraculous provision turn into praise to God. Whatever gratitude the other nine had, it did not result in upward praise of God. It did not bounce upward to gratefulness to God. That seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. Rather, whatever they would have felt would have been mere happiness at their better condition. Gladness for that, but not gratefulness to God for that. But for the Samaritan, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. The ESV says your faith has made you well. It, is, it literally is, your faith has saved you. And sometimes that does refer to physical healing, but I think here it is quite clear that this is talking about salvation. Why do I say that? Well, faith was not the source of physical healing, nor was it the means by which these lepers received their physical healing, their divine healing of their leprosy. All ten of them were healed. By what? By the power of Christ. They just walked away, and they were healed by the Lord. So not all ten had this faith. Only one of them, we're told, was said to have faith. Only the Samaritan is commended for faith because the healing had the effect of awakening faith in this man or perhaps if he already believed uh, that it was just revealed here. But either way, his true faith is revealed in the fact that he is praising God because of this great miracle. The other men were healed. No faith, just glad and on with, their, on with their lives. But he comes back rejoicing, praising God with a loud voice, thanking the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Salvation has come to this man. So these other nine, they, they prove to be, I think, a sad illustration of what we find in Romans chapter 1, which speaks there of people who refuse to give thanks to God Though his power is evident in creation, though we know he's powerful, though we ought to give thanks to him, Paul says there, mankind does not. The world knows a good time. They know how to experience happiness at times. They know when something is feels good versus doesn't feel good, pain versus not pain, pleasure. But it does not bounce from there into praising God. It does not rebound into praising God. To be thankful requires an object. We thank someone. Or we're thankful to something. Uh, so, you think of Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, there's all kinds of talk about being thankful, but rarely, if ever, is the object of our thankfulness ever stated. It's just some general... Uh, feeling there's no object and so it's not really a thankfulness at all it's just a gladness I just I'm just glad that I'm okay I'm glad that I don't have that guy's problems or that person's health struggles I'm glad I have these things that I have I'm just glad for it but it's not really truly a thankfulness because thankfulness ultimately has an object and true thankfulness has as its object the Almighty from whom all blessings ultimately flow. So the Samaritan in this story could see that he'd been granted a great blessing, a great physical blessing in his healing by God through Jesus, and he responded in faith, according to Jesus, in faith. This is expressed in praise and expressed in thankfulness to God and to Jesus. And so this, this, is, this ought to be how it is. Thankfulness to God. I mean, the fact is, we deserve nothing from God. We deserve death. We do not deserve breath in our lungs. As long as we live, God is sustaining us every step of the way, and He does so with various measures of good things that we enjoy along the way. His common grace is the grace that falls on believers and unbelievers alike. Rain that waters the ground, the sun that causes the crops to grow, and the food that is produced that eventually winds up on our tables and on the tables of our neighbors is ultimately the Bible teaches from God, a blessing from Him. We have homes, we have vehicles, we have health, we have clothing, and for many of us, we have this in abundance. And these things ultimately come from the gracious hand of God, who rules the world in His divine providence. And so the appropriate response to these things is to be thankful to God. And to praise him for God. That as we lay our heads down at night and it's freezing cold outside and we are warm. And though the roof over our head is not as nice as our neighbors or needs a little work or we you know, would love for it to be. It's a roof over our head that God has given us. It's the roof he has given you. The one that he has provided for you. And there's every reason to rejoice in that. We must not think as the world thinks, that these things are somehow just happening and God is just distant and kind of unrelated. God's providence teaches otherwise. And so these blessings we receive, the breath in our lungs, the health that we enjoy, the fellowship we have here, blessings from God. And so this teaches us to understand this, that every blessing we have is from God and that These things should lead us to thankfulness and to praise to God for all these blessings. And obviously, most notably of all, if we are trusting Christ, the greatest blessing of all for which we ought to be thankful, our very salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. So God is the ultimate source of your blessings. He uses other means to accomplish it. Food will pass through various hands before it gets to your plate. He may use your boss to bless you with a raise. It comes through the means of your boss. You thank your boss, but then you turn around and you praise God that he's provided. That that conversation wasn't another conversation that others sometimes have, where I regret to inform you we need to lay you off. Ultimately, our blessings come from the Lord. And so as we press on this week, let us... Be encouraged in the faith that we do possess. Weak as it might be, let's be encouraged in it. That it's evidence that God himself is at work in you. Let us press forward in our Christian duty, recognizing that we are, are just slaves of God. That we deserve nothing from his hand. We demand nothing from him. He has graciously brought us in and we exist to serve his Purposes and His pleasures. And let us do this then in a spirit of thankfulness, in a spirit of praise to God, knowing that all good things ultimately do flow to us from His hand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do stop and thank you. We praise you for your many provisions for us. God, we did not choose to be born where we were born. And if we think of all the different things that have happened throughout our lives that have brought us to this place, we step back and recognize that you are ultimately the one who has helped us along the way, who has provided for us. Father, this is what your word teaches us. And God, we are thankful that you have shown great mercy, great grace, that you've poured out many blessings on our heads. Father, I pray this week as we go that we would be strengthened in our faith, in our inner man, that we would trust that you will see us through whatever would come our way, that we would not fear whatever lies ahead and whatever difficult duties are before us, whatever sins we are fighting, that we would trust that you will provide, that you will give us victory, that you will walk us through it, that we would rely on you and your word, that we would look to one another for help and for guidance and strength. Thank you for the means you've given us to help us along in our journey. And Father, I pray that we would be humbled before you, that we would recognize that we are your slaves, that you are the master. And that we would have a a lowliness before you. God, and that we would be able to enter into that joyfully. Knowing that as your slaves we are freed from our sin. And we are freed to walk in newness of life. And so God, I pray that we would walk forward, step step out in faith. That we would go through this week trusting you. That we would go through this week even joyfully. That you would strengthen your people even now and as we continue to fellowship together and we pray all this in Jesus name amen